Greetings, listeners. You have found hope. This is the Bridge to Hope podcast, Finding Hope. I'm Coltra, and this is Alyssa. Today, we are going to talk to Angie about sexual assault because April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. This may be a sensitive topic to discuss, so please stop listening when you need to and practice self-care. Hello, Angie. How long have you been working at the Bridge to Hope, and what exactly is your role there? Hi, Alyssa. So I've been at the Bridge for almost five years, coming up in this April. I started out as a Pepin County advocate and then switched to sexual assault advocacy about a year or two into my job. And then about a year or so ago, we got extra funding to be able to get additional sexual assault advocate, Kat, um, who is also our campus advocate. And I became the director of sexual assault victim services. Um, I was very fortunate because the only thing I've ever wanted to do is work with sexual assault survivors. So I feel like this role is perfect for me. So being the sexual assault advocate, can you kind of give us a definition or explain what sexual assault is and how consent plays a role? Sure. So at The Bridge, we define sexual assault as a wide range of unwanted sexual contact. So victims might be coerced into sexual acts through force, manipulation, verbal or nonverbal threats, violence, pressure, or other tactics. If consent is not given or it's taken back, it's considered sexual assault. So this could include fondling, unwanted touching, um, rape, um, attempted rape, forcing, coercing, or manipulating a victim to perform sexual acts. So in Wisconsin, consent is defined as words or overt actions by a person who is competent to give informed consent, indicating a freely given agreement to have sexual intercourse or contact. Consent is not present when the other person is incapacitated by the use of alcohol or drugs, fears the consequences of not consenting, says no either verbally or physically, is not an active participant in the activity. In Wisconsin, any kind of sexual contact with a person under the age of 18 is illegal. So Angie, how prevalent are sexual assaults? Because sexual assaults are very underreported and most of the time it's self-reported, the statistics are not always accurate. And oftentimes the numbers are even higher than described. So really, one in six men and one in three women have experienced sexual violence in their lifetime. Sexual violence impacts everyone, but disproportionately affects people in marginalized communities. 60% of black girls experience sexual assault before the age of 18. 47% of transgender adults have experienced sexual assault, and 7% of Wisconsin high school students and 16% of gay, lesbian, and bisexual students have been raped. It's oftentimes by men and women who experience higher rates of sexual violence than their gay, lesbian, or hetero peers. One in 10 children will experience sexual abuse before they turn 18, which equals one in seven girls and one in 25 boys. Some numbers here at the Bridge to Hope. In 2018, we served 234 sexual assault victims. In 2019, um, we served 219 victims. And then in 2020, we served 214. So sexual assault obviously impacts a lot of people in our community. How does sexual assault impact a person? What happens to them mentally, physically, and emotionally? So oftentimes folks might experience um, nightmares, triggers or flashbacks, they might experience paranoia or panic attacks, they might become confused, um, almost like amnesia, having difficulty remembering details or difficulty concentrating, they might experience muscle tension, exhaustion and fatigue, um, headaches, spikes in blood pressure, nausea. Oftentimes you'll see eating disorders come into play or change in their sex drive. 
And then oftentimes victims will feel shock or disbelief, denial. There's an increase in depression and suicidal thoughts. They might feel powerless, a lot of fear and anxiety, um, and a lot of embarrassment, shame, and guilt. There's also a real fear of pregnancy and STIs after sexual assault. And if the perpetrator is someone close to the victim, they might lose their ability to trust others. Um, but it not only affects the victims, it also affects loved ones. Um, so sexual violence can affect parents, friends, partners, children, spouses, co-workers, anybody that we're really close to. Um, as they try to make sense of what happened, loved ones can experience similar re reactions to the sexual assault survivor, such as fear, guilt, self-blame, and anger. Um, but it also has impact on communities such as schools, workplaces, neighborhoods, um, anywhere where sexual assault can happen in our community. Violence of all kinds tends to destroy our sense of safety and trust. And there are also a lot of financial costs to communities, including medical services, criminal justice expenses, crisis and mental health service fees, and the lost contributions of individuals that are affected by sexual violence. Sexual violence weakens the basic pillars of safety and trust that people feel in their communities, and it really creates an environment of fear and oppression. Uh, there was a recent study from the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention that found that individual victims of sexual violence incur um, almost $123,000 over a lifetime in costs, um, which can be associated with lost wages, mental and physical health, criminal justice, and property damage. But it can also be related to uh, survivors might have a loss in income due to loss of employment, having to take time off, um, mental health appointments, things like that as well. If I'm sexually assaulted, what should I do after? What are the next steps that I should take? So after an assault, it's hard to know how to react. You might be physically hurt, emotionally drained, or unsure of what to do next. You might be considering working with the criminal justice system, but are unsure where to start. So the first thing that you should do is make sure you're physically and emotionally safe. Can you call a friend or a family member, someone you can trust? Do you need to physically go to another space or call an advocate? And then I want you to consider your medical options. So many um, survivors might be scared to pursue medical attention right after an assault, and that's perfectly normal. But you need to do what's best for you in accordance with your own physical, psychological, and emotional needs. Um, choosing to go to the hospital after an assault can be beneficial for many, many reasons. Number one is to check to just make sure you're physically okay. Do you have any injuries um, resulting from the assault? Are you worried about pregnancy or STIs? Um, the hospital can do STI testing and antibiotics. They can also provide emergency contraception to folks. And additionally, they can provide a SANE exam. So that's uh, what we call a sexual assault nurse examination. That's where the nurses collect DNA, blood samples, and other evidence. Um, and you can do this even if you're not ready to report to police. A SANE kit can be kept up to nine and a half years. So we always recommend that if you're unsure if you're going to report to get the SANE exam because you can't go back later to do that. So if you decide this is something you want to do, try not to take a shower, brush your teeth, um, go to the bathroom, or change your clothes. But even if you do those things, it's okay. You can still get that DNA and I, um, you can still get checked out medically either way. The third thing you want to decide is whether or not you want to report to law enforcement. So most sexual assaults occur between two people who know one another, um, but that doesn't make the assault any less traumatic. And it can be a really large source of confusion, embarrassment, hurt, and broken trust. 
But regardless of who commits the sexual assault, it's still a crime, and it leaves the survivor injured and traumatized. Survivors of sexual assault, especially when committed by an acquaintance, often feel a sense of responsibility for the attack and don't report the crime to the police. So it's pretty easy to, you know, just tell people to go to law enforcement or go to get a medical exam. But why would people be scared of reporting? What are some pros and cons of people reporting? So there are several reasons why reporting can be scary. Um, the person, uh, the victim or survivor might know the person who assaulted them and is afraid of retaliation or sometimes really scared that the perpetrator might get into trouble, especially if it's their spouse or their partner. Um, if the victim is underage, they might be scared that they'll get into trouble if there were drugs or alcohol involved, or they might be scared of their parents finding out. The victim might be afraid that the police won't believe them or that the officer will think it's their fault. Um, if the victim is an undocumented citizen, they might be afraid of de um, being deported. Sometimes they don't want anyone to know that's especially true for college students or high school students or if the perpetrator is someone they're close with. There's also a lot of victim shaming and blaming. That's a big reason that students don't return to campus after an assault. And there's a lot of stigma involved if the victim does not identify as female. Sexual violence against males is underreported, far more so than any case of women, largely because of the reluctance of men to report acts of sexual violence to the police. This is likely due to extreme embarrassment experienced by most males being a victims of sexual violence. Men are oftentimes concerned about their own perceptions and the outside perceptions of their masculinity, their sexuality, and their opinions from others. Um, fear of police also comes into play when reporting to police. According to a 2017 study, black women were at the highest risk of any group for experiencing sexual violence perpetrated by police officers. In addition, negative personal, family, and community experiences with law enforcement may cause black survivors to feel that reporting sexual violence to the police is not an option for them. Other reasons that some people of color um, cite for choosing not to report include fear of physical violence against them and their family, worries about being unjustly accused of being the perpetrator of a crime, and feelings that even if the report is made, they still might not get justice. Um, they were sometimes also met with a lack of culturally competent resources. But there are many pros and cons to reporting. So some of those pros might be uh, it's the opportunity to present your side of the incident. The perpetrator might be held accountable. It's an opportunity for a sense of closure or justice. And crime victim compensation can pay for an exam and other medical costs if you report within five days of the assault. And also your report will be on record and could be possibly used to aid future victims. So even if you want to report the assault but don't want to go any further, you can at least talk to the police, give them the information, and if that name pops up later, they can use that report to substantiate that. But there are, of course, some cons. Um, so there's no guarantee that the perpetrator will be charged or convicted, and the process might not provi um, provide that sense of closure that you're hoping for. The sentencing may feel unfair or unsatisfactory. Conviction may not present the opportunity from reoffending. And your privacy might not be protected. Family, friends, peers may find out. A lot of folks are afraid of not being believed. And the whole court process can be very shaming, triggering, and it can last a really long time. But I don't want that to ever deter somebody from reporting. Angie, can you tell us a little bit about what the recovery process of, of all this looks like? So healing really looks different for everyone, and there isn't a timeline for recovery. If you're recovering from a sexual assault, you might feel um, very unmotivated to do the things that you once loved to do. 
Uh, So this is a time to really take care of yourself and focus on yourself. For instance, when you're watching TVs or movies, looking at news stories that might upset you, you may want to read it in a private place. If you come across a trigger, you can always close the book, turn off the computer, go enjoy a movie with friends. You can leave the theater if something upsets you. But just remember, you don't owe anyone a story. You don't have to answer anyone's questions. It's really your opportunity to share your story in the way that you want to share it. And just remember, if you heal quickly, resilience doesn't make the assault any less serious. Neither are you weak if you take a long time to heal. No one else can tell you the right way to feel for your situation. So with sexual assault, is it normally strangers that commit sexual assault? Is it people that you know? How does grooming play a role? Because as a kid, I was taught about stranger danger, but I know that's not necessarily true when it comes to sexual assault. So that's a really good point. In 8 out of 10 rape cases, the victim knew the perpetrator, and nearly one in four women make, uh, may experience sexual violence by an intimate partner in their lifetime. And a huge um, 90% of children who are sexually abused knew their perpetrator. So like when you're talking about stranger danger, that's what we grew up telling our kids, right? Like don't talk to the stranger, come up with a code word, run, say fire, etc. But really we want to teach our kids about the unfortunately about the people that we're closest to so and that's what when you're mentioning grooming where that comes into play so there are um, quite a few common grooming behaviors that parents should really know to watch out for for not only your children but for yourselves as well because anybody can be groomed for to be a victim of sexual violence so the first tactic is forming those relationships so perpetrators seek to form those relationships with folks um, they spend their spare time with them. They be, seem to be more interested in forming relationships with the children than the adults. And then they'll single that child out as special and give them extra attention and gifts. And then they want to test the boundaries. So perpetrators will try to test the boundaries of the, the victim's comfort levels. Sometimes they'll tell off-colored or sexualized jokes to see how they'll respond. They might try to play sexualized games such as um, truth or dare or strip games and then see how they react to that. Perpetrators thrive in secrecy, so testing the boundaries might help them know if they can continue without being caught. And then there's touching. So the perpetrators will test the boundaries and um, touch the victim. It usually begins with non-sexual touches, such as high fives and hugging, and they'll kind of see how that goes. And then they'll slowly progress um, to inappropriate touching to see how the victim reacts. And then they start um, the intimidation process. So perpetrators use intimidation in order to keep the child from telling another person about the abuse. They'll begin by testing the reaction um, for being blamed for something simple, and they'll see if the child pushes back or tells an adult. But oftentimes, um, the perpetrator will tell the child, no one will believe you, or they'll say, if you tell anybody, I'll hurt your family. So then the, the kid is too afraid to say anything. Then they'll go on to sharing sexually explicit material. Perpetrators often share sexualized material in order to normalize the sex. They'll use sexual items freely in the presence of the child, like bringing out sex toys or pornography, things like that. Um, And then they'll often begin a sexualized relationship through text messaging or video chatting, Snapchats, things like that. And then they'll start communicating secretly. So they'll look for any communication um, channel to communicate with a child secretly. So Really, parents need to look out for those apps that have messaging on them, such as like different video games like Minecraft, Roblox, um, apps like TikTok or Snapchat, Instagram, where they have private messaging where um, other people can't see. Is there a place I can go to get support with the sexual assault or have a support group or anything or have an advocate to talk to? 
So if you're unsure of where to go, you can go to the RAIN website. RAIN is the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network. Their website is www.rain.org, or you can call their National Sexual Assault Hotline, and they can direct you to a provider that's closest to you. You can also go to the WACASA website. WACASA is the Wisconsin Coalition Against Sexual Assault. If you click on the Survivors tab and followed by the Get Help tab, this will take you to a map of all the service providers that are in Wisconsin, and you can pick uh, an advocacy center that's closest to you. But the Bridge to Hope has advocates available 24-7 via our text or crisis line. We also do have a weekly healing from trauma support group that's every Thursday from 5 to 6. Right now it's being held on Zoom, but we're hopefully going to in-person groups again soon, fingers crossed. Um, But you can get more information about that by emailing me or calling the bridge to find out. Uh, How can somebody in the community help a friend or a survivor of sexual assault, even if they maybe don't have the experience or are not an advocate themselves? So anyone can really be an advocate for a friend and family member. So the first thing you want to do, if possible, have the discussion in a safe and comfortable area. Avoid responding with judgment or shock or shock and blame. And that's also for your facial expressions as well. Like if someone's disclosing to you a sexual assault, you don't want to look like you're super angry or upset because then that person thinks that you're mad at them, especially if it's a kid. Um, And you might be the first person that they're disclosing to. So you want to give your undivided attention and give them space to speak and be heard without being interrupted. Try to normalize their feelings and encourage them to share their story in whatever way they need to. And use supportive and non-blaming language. Tell them that you believe them and it's not their fault. I think that's the number one thing uh, that's so important. If you tell them it's not their fault because oftentimes victims really believe that that they did this. I also want to let you know to be patient. Healing looks different for everyone, and there isn't a timeline for um, when they're going to feel better. If they're open and comfortable, help connect them with resources such as the Bridge to Hope, and then make sure to thank them for sharing with you and let them know how brave they are because it's a really difficult thing to share your story with somebody, especially when you don't know if they're going to believe you or how they're going to react. So being a survivor of sexual assault is very draining. What are some self-care tips you have for survivors? One of the most important things is to try to get support from friends and family. Try to identify people that you trust to validate your feelings and affirm your strengths. And try to avoid those who think that try to deter you from your healing process. Talking about the assault and expressing your feelings can be really healing, but make sure that you choose when, where, and with um, with whom that you're talking about the assault and set limits by only disclosing information that feels safe for you to reveal. Use stress reduction techniques like exercise, yoga, massage, hot baths, prayer, meditation. Try to maintain a balanced diet and sleep cycle, which is super hard because for most of us, self-care includes eating junk food and Netflixing which is totally okay in um, minimal amounts. And then try to discover your playful and creative self, like playing, doing art, journaling, writing. Any of those things can be really helpful. You might want to consider writing or keeping a journal as a way of expressing thoughts and feelings. And it doesn't have to look any type of way. Sometimes folks just write whatever words are popping into their head, and that's completely okay. It doesn't have to make sense to anyone but you. And then you can release some of your hurt and anger in a healthy way. I always tell folks you can write a letter to the perpetrator and you don't have to give it to them. Um, I mean, you can if you want to, but most people will write all these feelings down and you can either burn it, rip it up, save it. 
whatever you're comfortable with, but just not holding on to all that hurt and anger because that's really not hurting the perpetrator. It's hurting you in the long run. And then you can also draw pictures of the anger you feel towards your attacker as a way of releasing that emotional pain. And then hugging. Hug those people that you love. And I know that's really hard during COVID, but take that time and um, really connect with those people that love you and support you. And remember, you are safe even if you don't feel it. The sexual assault is over and it may take longer than you think, but you will get feel better with time. Maybe not 100% better because healing takes a lifetime sometimes and that's okay. Don't feel discouraged by that, but just know that just because you feel some type of way today doesn't mean that you're going to always feel that way. So yeah. So what are your favorite ways to practice self-care um, after working with victims and survivors of sexual assault? So personally, I try to take time for myself. Uh, if I need to, I take a mental health day. Luckily, my uh, co-advocates are really supportive of that. And I will spend the day in my pajamas watching Netflix, having dessert coffees, or doing colored by numbers. Um, and then I always lean on my co-advocates for support by debriefing, talking about things. Um, that's what we are here for. We're there for each other, which is super important. You have to have that trust and that support in each other in order to get through this. With April being Sexual Assault Awareness Month, what events are coming up to honor that? So one of the events that we're doing is uh, Survivor Love Letters. So basically, throughout the month of April, survivors and allies in the community will have the opportunity to write letters to their younger, current, or future selves, or to survivors to let them know that they are believed, supported, and loved. We'll accept submissions online or through the decorated mailbox located in the entryway of our building. These letters are then going to be read by our advocates during our virtual presentation at the end of the month on the 27th. We're also doing Coffee Sleeves and Consent, which is a month-long event. You can check out Menominee's local coffee shops and nutrition shops during the month of April to see our We Love Consent coffee sleeves and support the local businesses in our area. We're also doing a SAM virtual event. It's called Walking with a Survivor. That's going to be April 27th at 6 o'clock via Zoom. During that presentation, we're going to speak with community partners, including representatives from the Menominee Police Department, Dunn County Sheriff's Office, Dunn County District Attorney's Office, Mayo Hospital, um, talking with a SANE nurse, and UW Stout, where we'll be walking through a survivor's journey after an assault. At the end, we're going to read the survivor love letters, and survivors will also have the opportunity to speak if they choose to. On April 28th, we will be bringing awareness to Denim Day. So Denim Day is an international protest responding to the Italian Supreme Court's overruling a rape conviction in 1999. Although the assailant had been found guilty at the trial, the Supreme Court argued that because the victim was wearing jeans and jeans are difficult to remove, the assailant could not have done so without the victim's help. So decades later, victims of sexual assault continued to be disbelieved and blamed for their assault due to that behavior or um, fashion choice, such as wearing tight jeans. Um, so on Denim Day, community members, schools, and companies are always encouraged to wear jeans in support of survivors and to bring awareness to the issue. Many agencies choose to have employees pay to wear jeans and the proceeds then go to our sexual violence prevention efforts in our community. The last event that we're gonna be doing is Books with the Bridge. Um, and this is a reoccurring event that's going to happen every month. 
It's a monthly book club starting in April. Due to the nature of our agency, some readings will touch on issues surrounding domestic violence, sexual assault, and other trauma. But we'll also be choosing books that focus on healing, growth, empowerment, and more. For Sexual Assault Awareness Month, our first book is Know My Name by Chanel Miller. It's a memoir about Miller's experiences navigating recovery from sexual assault while at the center of high-profile case against Brock Turner. And this is going to be on Facebook. So you can look up Books with the Bridge on Facebook and find us. Um, we'll be doing discussion questions and then also doing Zooms so that we can discuss face-to-face -face as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Angie, for sharing your knowledge and being so honest with all of the ins and outs of sexual assault and sexual abuse. Uh, this month, you can show your support for Sexual Assault Awareness Month by wearing denim on Wednesday, April 28th. You can also find out more information about Sexual Assault Awareness Month on our Facebook page during the month of April. Because April is also Child Abuse Awareness Month, we will be releasing a bonus episode after talking to Alyssa about Child Abuse Awareness Month. Have a good one.